This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. As of this moment in America, many Americans are wondering on a daily basis just what in the hell Joe Biden is doing. Doubtless you'll have your own answer to this burning question. Varying theories are advanced almost on the daily to make sense of the senselessness. I'm inclined to say Biden is doing the same thing untold millions of us are doing every day. You personally might not be passing out at that beach, wandering around aimlessly on that job, or grunting no comment when people ask you questions, nor hunkering down at that house with that drug-abusing family member. But in your own way, you, like Joe Biden, are probably deep in your own private routine of numbing yourself to the terrifying reality that nobody is in charge of our country. It sure isn't Biden, but it's not Kamala either, nor is it Mitch McConnell, Victoria Nuland, Jamie Dimon, Black Lives Matter, Bill Gates, Klaus Schwab, or the aliens. Not even the deep state is in charge. The intelligence community, the military-industrial complex, they're not the executive branch. They're just a branch of the bureaucracy spun up by Congress, whose members revel in outsourcing their legislative power to career drones we can't vote in or out. What we're witnessing right now is a country without a head but it might just have a brain. Lest we forget, Barack Obama never left Washington, not permanently. Violating one of the most precious political norms of our sacred democracy, he stuck around long after his time in office ended and his children left the nest. And he stuffed his former number two's administration with his own staff, his own loyalists, and his own henchmen. As he told Stephen Colbert way back in 2020, if I could make an arrangement where I had a stand-in, a frontman or a frontwoman, and they had an earpiece in, and I was just in my basement with sweats looking through the stuff, and I could sort of deliver the lines, but somebody else was doing all the talking and ceremony, I would be fine with that. Unquote. If there wasn't so much darn continuity, you'd almost call it a coup. But in the end, even our secret illegal president isn't really in charge. The continuity is. This super blob of elites. They're the regime. They're what needs to go. Before we self-medicate so hard, we become a whole nation of Bidens. I'm James Polis. This is Zero Hour. Patrick Deneen is professor of political science at the University of Notre Dame, where he has taught since 2012. Previously, he taught at Princeton University and Georgetown University. He's the author and editor of numerous books, including Why Liberalism Failed, and most recently, the book on regime change, Regime Change. He is a co-founder and author at the Substack Post-Liberal Order. Welcome, Patrick. It's so good to see you. Thank you, James. Thanks for having me. And it's good to see you again. Yes, indeed. You failed to mention that I, among other things, was one of your teachers at Georgetown University. 
Full disclosure. Yes. Yes. And we uh, we go back quite and it's a ways. Great to see you uh, having ascended to the heights of, of fame, fortune, and yes. and, and power. A precarious <laughs> balance. Uh, we'll see how long it lasts, uh, and we'll see how long this regime lasts. So that's what we're here to talk about. You wrote the book. You did why liberalism failed. Big success. Barack Obama said, "Read it." Um, you, you, people can probably interpret that as as they will. Uh, this book is a little different. Subtitle is toward a post-liberal future. Um, I think a lot of people in this country are, are really are self-medicating, hoping that something will happen, that something will change, that the fever will break. They, they're not sure what to do, how to get their arms around it, how to even, you know, assess these competing claims about which direction we should go in. Um, your book is pretty pretty clearly written. Um, an ordinary person can read it, which sets you apart from lots of academics. <laughs> uh, but just get us up to speed quickly on uh, what a post-liberal future is, and we'll go from there. Well, sure. So the last book, Why Liberalism Failed, was really a kind of diagnosis of how and why things have gone wrong. Um, and even President Obama read it and he said, one can profit from reading this book, although I should mention he also said he disagreed with its conclusions. Uh, so oh, all the pity, uh, which, which, you know, is uh, I think that's maybe is a is a ringing more even more ringing endorsement. <laughs> uh, but the book was really about uh, the ways in which the liberal order, what we're talking about here is the regime, has a kind of underlying trajectory. It shapes us in certain kinds of ways. And, and the ways in which it shapes us in particular is to become liberal human beings. Liberal human beings are people who have to become in some ways self-making. All, every essence, every decision, every aspect of their being has to be the result of their conscious choice which means liberating themselves from anything that might influence or shape or uh, you know, have some kind of power or authority over those choices and those decisions. And this is why, among other things, not only have we liberated ourselves from our places, from our traditions, from our culture, increasingly you see the liberal regime now going right after the two areas that are the deepest, perhaps the most profound shapers of who we are, which is our families and religion. Those two entities are now in the kind of sights of the liberal regime, this kind of, this order of things. So the, the book that I've just written, Regime Change, is really about what would come afterwards. If liberalism has failed, if it's made us into these human beings that are miserable, we're self-medicating ourselves, we're killing ourselves through our self-medication, uh, we are deeply discontent with our condition. People's levels of unhappiness are through the roof. What comes next? And here I think it needs to be something that's after liberalism. Okay, so it's it's interesting, I think, all in its own right to say that, hey, actually the people are a sort of mirror of the regime. And if what you see is liberals failing on a profound spiritual and, and, and physical level, then that probably says something really bad about the regime that's, that's in place now. Uh, a lot of what you cover in the book uh, that I find to be the most interesting is kind of the uh, 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 an understanding of the relationship between the people and the elite or the people and the regime. <clears throat> um, you write, recourse to the wisdom of the people operates best and most authoritatively in conditions of relative stability and continuity, uh, which I think is a great insight because yes, you know, if if the the logic of liberalism or the liberal way of life is one in which all um, uh, movement through life uh, converges on uh, a string of of conscious choices, as you said. Uh, well, that raises the question of like, what is consciousness after all? And how do you know if the choice that you're making is really a conscious choice? Um, and I think in, in most cases, it boils down to, well, if you are abandoning whatever you're doing right now, 
then surely you're making a conscious choice. The proof of, of, the, of your successfully doing liberalism is to progressively abandon whatever it is that you've sort of been given or inherited or find yourself doing. Um, that can be really exhausting, can't it? Yeah. Yeah, I think one of the hallmarks of this order that we're living in, you know, I want to broadly describe, describe it as liberal, we can describe it as progressive, we can describe it as kind of modern, woke capitalism, however we want to describe it, it's one of disruption, constant disruption. This is one of its core features and one of the sort of its marks of, of self-pride that it's, it's, an, it's a way of life in which tomorrow presumably is better if it doesn't look like yesterday. And this year is better, presumably, if it doesn't look like last year. And this decade is better if it doesn't look like the last decade. Right? Well, why, why did we just spend, have this kind of orgy of you know, icon destruction uh, in the last couple of years? The tearing down of statues, the figurative, if not literal, tearing down of the tradition of the West, right? the, the decimation of the form of education that we both know from you know, our time at Georgetown or from my time as a graduate student and as an undergraduate in which you were steeped in the tradition. And there's nothing now that's sort of more you know, sort of, uh, uh, objectionable than being steeped in one's tradition because one can learn something from it. So this kind of constant disruption becomes the hallmark by which we mark our progress and our advance. But this is precisely the condition in which kind of the ordinary person who's not equipped with the kinds of tools of the you know, sort of placeless, borderless, geographyless, the globalist cosmopolite, uh, that, this, that the ordinary person who generally kind of benefits from soundness in one's family life and one's community and the expectation that tomorrow is not completely different than yesterday or next week from last week, or next year from last year, those people are actually at a profound disadvantage. And indeed, this way of life is a disservice to them. It's, it's a form of deep and pervasive inequality. Well, and there's a paradox there, which is really starting to hit home for so many Americans, which is if everything is always in flux, if everything is always being disrupted and undermined and replaced and transformed and terraformed, then why are the people in charge always still the same? Why is the regime the one thing that seems not to be changing its character as all this unfolds? So one of the things I discuss in the book is the way that these forms of stability have been essentially recreated in a kind of almost as a luxury good among the contemporary elite. They've created a kind of lifestyle enclave of stability for themselves. So you'll notice, among other things, measurements of family health, economic health, educational health. They're now more or less monopolized by the elites in our society. And it doesn't matter if you're a right elite or a left elite. It's pretty much here, it's pretty much the same. And we both lived in the DC general area. And there it didn't matter if you were you know, on, on the side of the Republicans or the Democrats, if you were part of that bubble, if you were part of what Charles Murray has called the HYP, Harvard, Yale, Princeton bubble. Your political ideology mattered a lot less than your class mattered. And one of the hallmarks of the contemporary elite is that it has made for itself this kind of luxury good of stability amid a world of instability that they have created and from which they generally benefit from. And I think we really begin to need to see that that form of instability is a form of kind of class oppression. It's how the elite maintain their status in a contemporary world in which they fear, they deeply fear, uh, the, the potential for an uprising from the proletariat, from the ordinary people who happen to be conservative. They're demanding order. They're demanding stability. So it's the opposite of what Marx suspected. 
The proletariat isn't revolting. They're not engaging in revolution because they want revolution. They're revolting, in a sense, because they want stability. Well, I think you can see that in the this strange sort of social psychology uh, that, that attaches to public perception of the elites. Uh, it's really not, not that envy-driven. Uh, it's not as if everyone wants to be living the life of these elites, uh, but they, they do, I think, recognize that, um, that the basic stability of life, uh, the, the predictability, the structure, the, something that you can rely on, um, is sort of being expropriated and concentrated in the hands of a very few, where you know, it isn't so much what side of the, of the, the political aisle in the, the House of Reps you're on, but what side of that zip code you're on. If you're in the super zip, then you know you can rest pretty assured that no matter how crazy things get in the world, your life isn't going to fall apart. And that used to be something that a much larger share of Americans uh, could could hang on to and could trust in. Even people who are you know working themselves to the bone. You know, yeah, that's the bad news. The good news is uh, your world isn't going to get blown up. Uh, or if it was, it was going to be because of the atomic bomb or whatever. Um, that seems now to have left. Uh, people's consciousness. It's not something that we're all afraid of anymore. Uh, we're afraid of these other things, these kinds of, you know, there's, it's a new crisis every day. There's some new area of life uh, that is being invaded and is being disrupted. And you, you have no way of knowing, no way of anticipating. You follow the leaders. They, they never go away, but they never prepare you for what happens to you. And then they never take care of you after, after it does happen to you. Um, so there's, it's not resentment it's not class resentment that we're used to seeing in that kind of class analysis. It's not jealousy. It's this something else. It's the feeling that that a, a genuine human life is being is being withdrawn from more and more of society. So I think that's a very shrewd observation. It's not. It's again. It's not what Marx predicted that the the, the sort of lower classes or the working classes would would be given to rise up because of a kind of a jealousy or a form of en a class envy. Uh, now, there can be conditions of deep and profound economic inequality that can certainly cause, uh, you know, a degree of insistence that we need to, there needs to be fairness in our system. And I do think that's part of what we're seeing. But I think more than anything of what we're seeing is the, is the, a kind of the rejection or an uprising against the hypocrisy and the deception even a form of self-deception that's being perpetrated by this elite class. And what we should notice is that the elite class, it's not, it doesn't um, follow the typical old-fashioned right and left lines, in which in the old days, the right would be the defenders of a kind of free market economy, and the left would be the defenders of a kind of economic fairness combined with a kind of lifestyle liberalism. And now, really, what the upper class is increasingly is defending simultaneously a kind of disruptive economic order, especially in the form of a globalized, borderless economic uh, machine in which a few woke global corporations run the show and technology becomes the kind of way in which we, we, we uh, medicate ourselves or one of the ways in which we medicate ourselves. On the one hand, and on the other hand, uh, a people who are really have no sort of point of entry into that, uh, that, that it's not a left, it's not a classic left-right divide. It's really a divide between this relatively small many who seek to defend the system of disruption and a fairly large number, I'm sorry, did I say I'm some, a, a, a fairly small few uh, who are seeking to preserve the system and a large group of the many, uh, the broadly speaking working class, and I think it is a multiracial, I think it's a transracial working class, 
uh, that are really seeking to both rein in the disruptiveness of both the economic and the social domains, both the kind of globalized economic order as well as the kind of social domain that now instructs us that there's no difference between a man and a woman and that marriage is whatever you want to define it as and that uh, gender is a construct. I think we really are seeing a kind of pushback against both kind of right and left liberalism in its disruptive forms. Well, and arguably they're, they're converging and it wouldn't be that surprising yeah. to see among a group of people who I think many of them are genuinely convinced that there really isn't any other virtue besides intelligence. And intelligence is so great because you can sort of simulate the other virtues through intelligence. Mm -hmm. And especially with artificial intelligence and with this technological apparatus, uh, you know, if you can create a machine that creates the semblance of virtue, uh, that, that creates circumstances and relationships and, um, and symbols that seem to have life in them but really don't have life in them, then yes, you're going to be pushed ever to, to transcend ever more layers of uh, what have been, you know, reliable uh, hallmarks of human life um, until perhaps you finally get to the point where you're saying like, well, humanity itself is to blame. You know, we tried monarchy, that didn't work. We tried oligarchy, that didn't work. We tried democracy, uh, not, you know, we got January 6th and they, they run down the list. And, uh, and ultimately you have uh, at the very top of the elite, I think, um, uh, a, a kind of envy um, and not just envy for how far up the ranks do you go within the elite, but what, you know, but what I feel like has to be described is an, an envy toward God, a desire for genuinely godlike power, ability, freedom, control, foresight, uh, the power of transforming yourself in, in any way that you can, that you can imagine. Um, you give us a picture of basically two classes. You got a big working class and a, a little elite. Uh, maybe they work, but in a sort of strange and different way. Um, I just want to look under the hood of both of those two groups uh, because this isn't really the kind of us and them, you know, it isn't really an urban rural thing uh, that, that someone like a Charles Murray would sort of take that, that lens. You're giving us something a little bit different, so I want to dig in. Um, what, what characterizes that elite for you? Um, how do you know uh, those people when you see them? So in the, in the book, I talk about the displacement of the old aristocracy uh, and in two kind of forms, the old aristocracy in the kind of classic sense, the sort of pre-French revolution, pre-French revolution sense, the kind of landed aristocracy, of, for example, of our friend Alexis de Tocqueville, whose, you know, whose name literally meant he was of Tocqueville, of the family Tocqueville and of the place Tocqueville. And the, both of these things were important in his self-definition as a member of the aristocracy. So the, the old aristocracy was literally landed. I mean, it, was, it had a place. Uh, it was defined by its ownership of a vast amount of property. Those who owned property typically were the aristocrats. Those who didn't own property typically weren't. Now, if you were a second or third or fourth son or daughter, then you might have a little different place in the aristocratic order. But you could still be an aristocrat if you were born of a certain family. That was replaced uh, by a different kind of an aristocracy. And I would say it was a kind of transitional aristocracy. Uh, interestingly, I think it still had a kind of quality of the landed nature. And we could think of this as the kind of early to mid, um, early 20th century or late 19th century, early uh, to mid 20th century, kind of the owners of the corporations, the owners of the institutions, the play, the, or, the, or maybe in a smaller scale, the people who 
owned businesses or, or constituted the professional class in their still, towns still and properties, their cities. Still properties, if not exactly they still, landed. They still identified with places. So even like Ford. You know, Ford was a owned a pretty big company, but that company was very definitely linked to the city of Detroit. And one couldn't think of Ford or General Motors without thinking of Detroit. One can't think of the insurance business where I grew up in Hartford, Connecticut, you know, without thinking about that particular place. So, so even when we had the beginnings of this kind of modern, recognizable form of the corporation, uh, which was really a difference from the old aristocracy, it still had some of those identifiable features. The managerial class, today's aristocracy, I think is marked by something very different. They're kind of placeless. And in fact, one of the ways in which I think they're trained, and you mentioned uh, at the, in the introduction, I've taught at Princeton and Georgetown and at Notre Dame, three somewhat, you know, historically very distinct institutions. And yet, because they're all training the same elite, in some ways, they're kind of indistinguishable. And what is it that we're generally training our students to do? To be able to live anywhere to be able to do whatever they need to do to succeed in an economy in which you don't want to have a kind of commitment. You don't want to be rooted. You don't want to become antiquated. So to be constantly making oneself, to be constantly willing to move, to reshape yourself, to retool, almost literally, retool oneself as a tool, uh, to have no history or no tradition, to be bogged down or weighed down with some kind of set of commitments to a particular culture or a tradition, that really could prevent you from retooling yourself. Now, I think it's really interesting that we actually almost positively discourage students from learning languages anymore. If you notice what's happening in modern universities, we're discouraging the learning of languages because that would immerse you too much in a particular place and a particular tradition. You want to be able to speak the lingua franca, which happens just to be our language. So you don't want to Sort of get to know another culture, another civilization too well. So I think one of the hallmarks of this new aristocracy is its placelessness, its historylessness, its traditionlessness, and its capacity and indeed its demands always to be retooling itself and thinking of oneself as a kind of commodity, that, you're, that yourself is your property. You will never own property. My students probably won't own very little by way of property. They won't own books, they won't own CDs, they won't own actual land. But what they own is the skill set that they have, which they can constantly retool. And here I think it's less a matter of money, because you can have people from a whole range of incomes, a whole range of economic prosperity or precarity within these kind of, in this kind of a class, but they can identify each other by these hallmarks, by these features. And so one, one knows when one is among one's own class by certain kinds of hallmarks. Where did you go to school? What did you study? Where have you lived? Uh, what do you believe? What are your, what, what's your, you know, what are your, what are the things you care about? And it's very easy, I think, for people to identify each other based on these features. Vladimir Putin called the U.S. dollar's drop in dominance, quote, objective and irreversible during the recent BRICS summit in South Africa as Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa formally agreed to use local currencies instead of the US dollar. It's the first shoe to fall. As demand for the dollar weakens, the buying power of the dollar weakens. That is why Birch Gold Group is busier than ever. Investors and savers are looking to harness the power of physical gold held in a tax-sheltered IRA. Text JAMES to 989898 for your free info kit on gold. With thousands of happy customers, an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau, and countless five-star reviews, you can count on Birch Gold to help you navigate transitioning an existing IRA or 401k into an IRA in gold. 
As the US dollar continues to receive pressure from foreign countries, digital currency, and central banks, arm yourself with information on how to protect your savings. Text James to 989898 to claim your free info kit now. Over the past uh, four years or so, maybe longer at this point, I've spent a lot of time around tech and technologists and trying to figure out sort of what's going on. Speaking the of the new elite, of, right? <laughs> yeah, speaking of the new, well, and so, you know, there, there are some real divides between, uh, between the tech elite and what they see as these, these managerial bureaucrats. Um, they look at those folks and they say, okay, they're incompetent, they lack ambition, they're just waiting for their pension. Uh, they slow down the pace of, uh, of change. Uh, they make it harder to innovate, harder to improve things. Um, they have no vision. They have no uh, sort of elan or vitality. Um, and a lot of the conversation uh, in and around tech right now, um, at least in the group that has not completely uh, surrendered itself to uh, to wokeness. You know, I, I think some of these folks are like, well, look, any amount of wokeness is fine so long as we're the ones who get to press the buttons at the end of the day. You know, much like a lot of wokies, I think, are willing to accept any amount of technology so long as, as they're the ones who say, well, no, you know, we're going to make these value judgments and that's going to be at the top of the of the machine. Uh, anyway, the the issue for for me and I think for this uh, moment in the in the conversation here is um, what do you make of the, the, the conflicts and the, the struggle for power within uh, that, that elite where, where now we've got, I mean, I think coming out of COVID especially, uh, Silicon Valley was one of those places that was just so hyper-localized and identified with a certain industry in the way that Detroit or Hartford was. And then after COVID, you get Silicon Valley sort of breaking that shell and just spreading throughout the country and throughout the world. And suddenly technology itself as an industry becomes really abstracted, really delocalized. Um, that is a huge kind of advance in the direction of, um, of progressivism mm -hmm. and, and elitism, as you describe it, that the managerial class wasn't able to, to accomplish. Uh, what do you make of this kind of conflict between the technologists and the and the managerialists? Yeah, so the, I mean, the managerialists—it's interesting—they would be a kind of you could almost say they're the lower class of the uh, of the elites in a way. Uh, you know, to use Charles Murray's, uh, uh, or actually, I think this is uh, Richard Florida's. Uh, there's the super creatives, and then there's the creative class, and right. and the the sort of the servants of the creative class. And here, I guess, the creative class—you might be describing the kind of lower tier of the creative class. In some ways, they do want to create and indeed enjoy the bubble uh, of of uh, of order and stability that we were talking about earlier. They actually have created for themselves through life in their bureaucracies a, a certain degree of kind of stability, while nevertheless benefiting from and enjoying their status and position amid the widespread instability of the broader order that's especially affecting, badly affecting those of the, of the working classes. So you have those who probably don't have the financial wherewithal to literally create the bubble for themselves, right? To literally create, you know, in the super zips, to literally create their own community, to literally create their own uh, sort of George Bailey, Bedford Falls through the kind of the ability just to be, you know, just to be able to buy their way into uh, that kind of stability. So I think there is a kind of ersatz form of that. The problem is, is that even this bureaucratic class that's created this degree of stability for itself, they're happy to do so in the context of a broader order that is generating massive instability. Uh, they don't actually see the ways that they're complicit in the generation of that 
fundamental instability. You know, frankly, what you're describing in a lot of ways are my colleagues who are in the professoriate, who often think of themselves as the kind of social revolutionaries, but are really leading very bureaucratic kind of bourgeois existence uh, that's really kind of secure. I mean, life with tenure is you know, pretty stable and secure, but who are very satisfied with essentially contributing to the creation of an elite class that's going forth and generating all of the kinds of disorder and instability and disruption that we've been talking about. So I, I think there's a way in which these things kind of go together, which is that the kind of super creatives in some ways want to accelerate the disruption. The bureaucratic class is kind of content to live in their bubble of order, but nevertheless are the kind of, you know, they, they're willing to service, uh, even if at, at odds with uh, the super, the super zips, the super elites, uh, and even if they're sort of slowing them or anchoring down how much they, how much dis disruption uh, they would, they would, you know, those at the sort of top tier would like to be able to cre create and generate. You know, I think about the end of uh, of Leo Strauss's thoughts on Machiavelli, and it ends on this ambiguous kind of portentous note where. Uh, the, the, the question is raised, you know, have we progressed technologically to a degree that the old remedy, as the ancients saw it, um, for uh, corruption, decadence, tyranny, mismanagement, decline, um, that remedy would be natural disasters. Uh, the cycle would just reset. Time was cyclical. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of, you know, the, the last resort. Of, uh, of the people. And was that written in 55 or something? something like that. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> right. And so the, the question is there, you know, like, is that is that something that people can really uh, uh, hope in a perverse way, but um, is that off the table now? Um, and I think about that when you're, when you speak of an elite that has kind of engineered um, or systematized a kind of instability, an instability that increasingly lays claim to more and more of the planet, of our, our inner lives as well as our outer lives, our family lives, our economic life. Uh, there is, I think, a natural, a deep-seated um, uh, logic that um, is shared by people who are watching that process from the outside where they think, well, this has got to catch up with them someday, right? Mm. Eventually, the instability will, will breach the wall and the elites will fall because they have finally undermined so much of their own position that they're finally destroyed by this, by this machine that they've created. Uh, that's not really the impression that you create in the book. Um, you seem to think that it is wrong to sit back and wait for the system to collapse of its own weight. Why is that? Well, at a certain level, um, all unjust systems seem eventually to, uh, to fall under their own weight. Or another way of saying that, falsehood will eventually prove itself to be false. Uh, but when one is living under a system of falsehood, it's often the case that one doesn't want to wait for that moment, right? Would how long would communism have lasted? Soviet? How long would the Soviet Union had la would have lasted without uh, John Paul II, or without the Solidarity Movement, or without Ronald Reagan? You know, without uh, the Margaret Thatcher, without the efforts to bring about its downfall. It could have probably gone on another 20, 30, 50 years. Who we can't say. You know, it would be interesting to see an alternate future in which, if People had simply said, oh, it'll fall apart someday. This economic system won't work. How long can it last? And perhaps could have lasted another 10 years, 20 years, another lifetime. Would that have been, you know, would that have been worth it? Would that have been you know, the non-conflictual way to see things fall of their own weight? 
my book is really written as an effort to say, look, we can't wait. You know, it's not worth one more life living under this really unjust system. And people have to stop medicating themselves. And the people who have to stop medicating them, themselves are the people. Uh, the people and I would say people uh, in the elite, like ourselves, uh, probably like a lot of people viewing this, uh, they need to align themselves with a system and with a worldview that will be supportive of the needs of the many for a more stable, a more predictable, and a more orderly way of life. And among other things, this means giving up the illusion of technological inevitability. I think this is one of the, one of the myths or falsehoods that in some ways acts as a kind of form of self-medication. Well, there's nothing to be done. It's just the way it is. And here I think you know, we're already beginning to see some pushback. We've seen you know, there was a kind of an assumption, well, porn is going to be inevitable. People are just going to be able to access porn whenever and whatever, you know, and what, whatever time they want. And it turns out that by insisting that some of the large carriers of pornography, that they have to have a registration uh, page before you can enter their website. It turns out that that becomes a real discouragement uh, to, the, uh, to the spread of this uh, and the use of this, uh, this kind of technology. That Pornhub has declared that it is no longer going to uh, allow its, its, its services to be used in certain states that require a certain adult registration, proving one's age, because you know, a certain amount of shame attaches itself to that, rightly, rightly so. So I think the, the kind of, kind of the, 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 the retreatist or the, uh, you know, the, uh, you know, the supine position needs to be rejected. And instead, I think the last number of years politically have shown us that there's a lot of willingness of people to fight back. It is really remarkable uh, just to see <clears throat> demonstrated so publicly that, that maybe there is a force stronger than pornography. Maybe there is a force stronger than human technology. Shame. <laughs> well, human shame. Well, a spiritual force. Yes. Something that you, you are not going to find if you go out looking for it. Uh, mm -hmm. Something that comes from yep. in here. I mean, another, I mean, James, another thing. Who would have predicted uh, that parents would have risen up in the state of Virginia because they hated the lockdowns and they hated the kind of indoctrination taking place in their schools of teaching their children that they should hate America. And the parents rose up and said, we're not going to have this anymore. And they voted a, a governor uh, into office whom nobody expected to win. I mean, I, that was spirited. Uh, and you know, what that, that should prove, among other things, that we should be the pro-parent, the pro-family party. And among other things, we should be encouraging more people to become parents if this party wants to have a future, it needs, it's going to need parents in the future. It's going to need to have people who are committed and willing to fight for their children. What is the greatest source of spiritedness? It's probably people willing to fight for their kids. Yeah, that's right. Uh, people didn't even know who, who Glenn Youngkin was. I'd never heard of his yep. name before he made it into the news. Uh, and it's a little painful to me sometimes, you know, to see, see these mega donors say, like, this is the guy we need. Just send, send him up the flagpole. Get him in the White House. And it's like, man, you know, if we had 50 Youngkins or the equivalent in the 50 states, that would be so much more powerful than just one more guy sort of thrown into the lion's den and, and hope for the best. Um, yeah, I, he, he was almost secondary to the phenomena that occurred. The phenomena that occurred was the parents fought back. He was well, the vehicle for that. And that, that to yeah. me, was the most instructive aspect of that election. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, I, I, I was tickled to hear you describe uh, at least some of our viewers as elites themselves. Well, uh, maybe watching James Polis. I know, right? Maybe they would pat themselves <laughs> on the back, but maybe not. Uh, but this is, a, this is a really a perfect way to, um, to toggle over from talking about the elites, talking about the other guys, uh, the working class, as you call them. 
in some of my my darker moments, I sort of say to myself, like, what working class? Like, who who's working right now? Is you know, there's so much inefficiency, so much work from home. Not that work from home is automatically bad, but it can be very isolating. A lot of just people sort of like on Slack all day, kind of doing nothing. Uh, a lot of people who are you know. A, poor, but they're like on disability. I mean, the, the working population is shrinking. Number of people in the workforce is shrinking. The number of children is shrinking. You can just see like all of these social indicators suggesting that the working class is definitely not what it used to be. And then at the same time, you've got high earners who think of themselves as, oh, I'm chained to my phone all day. I'm chained to my computer all day. I'm stuck in the cubicle. I never have any home time. I'm neglecting my family. People who uh, are fantastically wealthy by the standards of you know the New Deal era, but see themselves as basically you know slaves to the machine, as certain sort of like stuck in that working class bracket. Um, how do you define the working class? It, what is what is your uh, your go to evidence to to show people that this is still a thing that we can talk about that means something? Yeah, so James, my the book in some ways is a kind of it's a little bit of a sequel, or I see it as something of a sequel to Christopher Lash's work in the mid '90s, in particular. Uh, you know, and many of your viewers might know his work uh, on the revolt of the elites, uh, and and that that work written in 1995, that essay in particular, uh, was really a kind of um, an effort to describe. I think, and in many ways, it uh, predicted uh, the kind of rise of the populist sentiment across the West, certainly in the United States and Britain and elsewhere, in which a a, a relatively small group of elites who are increasingly detached, this kind of managerial class we were talking about, no longer loyal to their countries, right? Now loyal to a kind of globalized ideal of what humanity should look like, uh, would be would find a nemesis in the working class, which was much more rooted, much more likely to be working with the stuff of the world, working with their hands. It might still be the kind of traditional working class, plumbing, HVAC, working in factories and so forth. But also I think the service sector these days is something of the working class, not in that traditional form. And Lash wrote about the two classes in which he described the elites then as kind of self-indulgent, self-deceptive hypocrites who claim to be egalitarians, but in fact were just the most snobbish and condescending people imaginable. That part of his analysis, I think, is still spot on. But when he described this working class, he described them as kind of avatars of virtue. He described them as the kind of having the homely virtues of hard work, of kind of basic ethical goodness, of still being committed to good values without having been educated on reading Aristotle or Thomas Aquinas. They just were the kind of embodiment of core good values. You're describing something I think that's probably more accurate, and it does reflect what Charles Murray writes about in his book, Coming Apart, the kind of, we could say, the decline, the kind of moral decline, the, the decline of the virtues, including hard work, the decline of these kind of homely but stolid virtues of the everyman or the yeoman class. Here, I think we, we have to, in some ways, abandon the idea that the, the populace are going to be the source of all that is good. That politically, if the populace win, we will be saved. Without a corresponding good elite, an elite that's aligned with the enrichment and the elevation of the populace, we're going to be in a very bad place. I think in many ways you can say that the corruption and decline of the populists is a reflection of the deep corruption of the upper class. That without a good upper class that helps to cultivate and elevate the working classes, the everyman. 
you're likely to see the, exactly the kind of corruption and decline that we've seen among the working class. I mean, you go back and read, as, as I'm sure you know, you know, John Adams, when he writes his thoughts on government, among the things he foremost uh, uh, elevates to a matter of core importance, he says, there needs to be a liberal education for every citizen, but especially the working man, who above all needs to be familiar with the great principles of self-government, both at the level of the individual as well as the nation. Well, why isn't the working class liberally educated in the way that John Adams hoped? It's not because they weren't willing to read, you know, Aristotle or, or so forth. It's because the elites throughout those, those texts and throughout those ideas long ago. So here we need not only a kind of uprising from below, we need a kind of uprising, as it were, or a kind of rejection from above as well. You're not going to have a virtuous people without a virtuous elite and vice versa. So the question is, and this is the question of my book, how does one begin that virtuous circle? So it's really interesting. I mean, you know, the, 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 the message about education that we get out of the elites is this is for a special kind of person. And we're going to find the very specialist people all across the country, in fact, all across the world, and we're going to close them in our little special parallel universe, and we're going to give them the special education. And, I mean, you just go to sort of like the meaning of, of liberal, right? Liberal education is something you mentioned in your book. This is an education for someone with leisure. How do you use your leisure in a virtuous way? And somehow that got turned into, you know, well, no, this is like, this is a special uh, parallel universe for a special kind of person. So right there, you're getting a break, you know, a, a someone who is a working person, probably who works with their hands, maybe even gets their hands dirty in the natural world. Oh, no, a liberal education is not for you. I mean, that's become a very powerfully ingrained belief mm. at the top. And I think it's, you know, it's ultimately connected to what is, what is, what prejudice is at work here, right? What is the bias against? Is it against work? Well, you know, a lot of these people would, would almost proudly call themselves workaholics. Oh, I haven't seen my kids in three months. You know, I'm off doing the really important stuff. But it seems to go beyond that. It seems to be not just against a work in general, but against work that has some kind of humility associated with it. So when you're talking about that kind of change that needs to happen, both among the people and among the elite. Uh, what we're really talking about here is vocab word metanoia, right? A, a change of heart, a turning, an inner turning away from what is spiritually barren toward what is spiritually fruitful. Is that right? That's right. So, I mean, it's interesting you would say that the way in which the ordinary people have been deprived of a, of a liberal education, well, it starts at the top. The elites have been deprived of a liberal education. I mean, very few of our elites are liberally educated, certainly not in that classical sense in which they would have been pretty steeped in the texts and the ideas of Western civilization, especially as it emanates from the classical tradition, Greece and Rome, and in the biblical tradition. Students today don't know any of that. They can probably, I mean, they, they probably can get through a college education without ever having to read a word of Plato or Aristotle or Aquinas or Augustine or Chaucer or Shakespeare. Uh, or much less the Bible, without knowing a single word, maybe even not even being familiar with those names, or even anything, any idea associated with them. Uh, it, it's almost difficult uh, to, to find a course of study in which one could become steeped in those ideas. So we've deprived not only, of course, regular people uh, from that kind of education, we've deprived the working class of, uh, from, I'm sorry, the elites uh, mm -hmm. from this kind of education. And that's precisely, it reflects what you were just saying, which is that they are not to be in some senses leisured. 
they're not to be lib liberal in that sense. They are to under understand themselves as always at work, always doing something in this economic process of disruption and always being willing to retool themselves. Now, how was it that ordinary people were liberally educated uh, in an earlier day? Well, it was somewhat in the schools. I mean, well, you can read, you know, read the, the letters from Civil War soldiers you know, who were infantrymen, and one is stunned by how absolutely articulate and how well, how learned they were in many cases. And this, is, just, this has become a meme on Twitter where it's become a sort of running joke where, you know, just, dear Mary, and then it's like a three or four <laughs> paragraphs of beautiful prose. I wasn't even aware of this, yeah. but this is absolutely, mm -hmm. absolutely the case. But, but more than being exposed to these ideas in the classrooms, they were exposed to them largely through their pastors and their priests and the preachers. And these were the people who were liberally educated and then brought them sort of weakly into the lives and into the hearts and minds of ordinary citizens. Part of metanoia is in some ways to realize that the spiritual lives of our citizens are absolutely desiccated. Absolutely desiccated because the spiritual lives of our elites are desiccated. Right? I mean, there, there is a deep connection between what is modeled as the desirable and the aspirational by those who are the leaders of our society. And today it's certainly not, as you were saying earlier, it's certainly not the idea that there's some, something toward which we owe reverence, something to which we should worship or that we should worship, something that has created us that we ourselves are not, in, uh, we are not responsible for creating, a recognition of an order that exists that we ourselves do not ourselves create. This, of course, is precisely runs contrary to what you were saying earlier, this idea of making ourselves into gods. And if there's anything about the kind of modern technological scientific world that we now inhabit, its core feature is to attempt to dissolve and to reject and to eliminate that idea of owing reverence to something outside of ourselves and attempting to make ourselves into something like the new gods of this universe with the attendant costs of a kind of spiritual desiccation. And, and to a degree, it's, it's working. And to a degree, it's sort of a race against, against that, that, that undertaking. I guess if, I guess if the self-medication and the, uh, you know, the, the spiking suicide rates and so forth constitutes working, then, then perhaps that... Well, yes, the, the gears are grinding away. I mean, I do think there is a kind of a dilemma here that you know, I'm, I'm grappling with, and that is uh, we've got elites who are inhabiting... Uh, you know, a, a vivarium or a construct, whatever you want to call it, where <clears throat> reading Aristotle is not just pointless, but it's like counterproductive. Like this is, no, like don't do that. That is a waste of time, inefficient, pointless. Um, and then in, in the lower class, uh, there's a, a sort of mirror of that situation where uh, the, the opportunity to put Aristotle to use in within the confines of this system, it just it doesn't show up for people. And so I think one, one consequence of that is that uh, more and more folks on, on the right, whatever that means, you know, just stipulate that, look at the situation, and many of these people are intellectuals, you know, and overeducated and products of higher, you know, they've seen how the sausage is made, they've gone through the system, they don't like it, they're trying to get out, and how do you get out? Well, you can say, um, <clears throat> what what's really needed is is uh, is a is a change of heart is a, a spiritual sort of conversion. Um, Plato isn't going to save us. Aristotle isn't going to save us. It's Christ who's going to save us. And so 
yeah, that stuff was great and everything, and being educated and intelligent is fine, but at the end of the day, is political theory going to save us? No. Is, you know, just sort of changing the the bodies and the administrative state going to save us? Save us? No. What's going to save us is just being the right kind of Christians. And now we have a situation on the right where, you know, you've got your sort of uh, Calvinists over here and evangelicals over there and orthobros over here and so Catholic integralism. You know, there, it, and in one sense, it's it's good to see all of these this kind of taking seriously once again um, matters of theology, matters of doctrine. Um, at the same time, however, it can quickly become uh, disconnected from these questions of of regime and of political change and of justice and of. Uh, uh, it, whether it's you know a just revolution or a right to revolution, uh, really uh, a willingness to pick up what weapons there are and wield them for the protection of the things that matter most, our our form of government perhaps, or our our long held customs, our way of life, our humanity. Uh, how I mean you 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 know perhaps this is a, a topic for an entirely separate book. You do touch on it a little bit in this one. Um, how do you think that whether people are in the movement or on the right or Christians or not or whatever, just Americans who see the situation and understand something of the stakes, how do you balance or reconcile or, or make work in harmony uh, the need for that spiritual transformation at a large scale and just the nuts and bolts of assessing the political situation and taking some power? So I don't I don't discount the possibility we could see a kind of r- miraculous revival of a, of a kind of robust Christianity of various forms, and that could itself transform the country. But I'm I'm let's just say uh, I think a lot of things would have to happen for that to happen. Uh, I t- I tend to be of the view that the discontents of people are expressed not only spiritually; they're also expressed politically. In this sense, I'm not, uh, I'm not sort of an either-or guy where we have to get our religion right before we get our politics right or we get our politics right in order to get our religion right. I think we should be focused and aiming to do both, but it's simply the case that especially at a time when the kind of religious formation of most Americans, whether it's the elite or the many, has been so degraded, so undermined, so, um, you know, it's absolutely weakened uh, in almost every respect, the basic political impulse that we're seeing, I think, is deeply connected ultimately for a longing for the more, most profound form of order. So we began by talking about the kind of hunger for stability, the hunger for order, the hunger for continuity, the continuity of time, of generations, of place, of a sense that tomorrow might look a little bit like today, that I won't be antiquated you know, next week, that my grandparents aren't irrelevant because they no longer know anything relevant to this world today, rather than being a source of wisdom, as I think should rightly be understood. I think that kind of almost instinctive revulsion to this system that we've created is more likely to be channeled, at least initially and productively, into a kind of political discontent that's not disconnected from a deeper longing for the reinstitution and an understanding of the profound and overarching order that is the all, that is the order of things. Right? The, the dislike of the, of the uh, inability to call a man a man or a woman a woman is ultimately connected to those lines in Genesis, right? God created him man and woman. 
It's not disconnected from those things. But at the most immediate level of most people's lives, that's going to take a kind of political form. No, we're going to reject this guy running for governor in Virginia because he wants to support teachers who are malforming our kids to think that a man isn't a man and a woman isn't a woman. So I, I think in some ways these are bound up together. We don't have to see these as disparate or as separate. I think they both come from a very sound, ultimately a kind of sound theological as well as a political impulse. And we need to see them as in some ways ultimately shoring each other up. Well, I think that's very important to, to, to approach the political in that sense because in some important respects, perhaps in even the most important respects, the political is still an incarnate area where you can point at another person and try to hold them to account or enter into a relationship with them, one that has some kind of structure and, and, and inherent, it's inherently human. And when so much is being abstracted by our elites or abstracted by our phones or made disincarnate by technology, uh, and you know, there's a push to just convert politics into something that only happens on the internet at the end of the day. We saw a lot of that through COVID. We'll probably see more of it coming soon. Mm -hmm. uh, but still, for, for the vast majority of, of Americans, it really is as close as you can get to that kind of face-to-face -face encounter that is being leached away from so much of society, where neighbors are not really neighbors, where family members aren't even really family members. They go to their own rooms and they get their own feeds and it's all being denatured. Politics can still be a place where uh, a spiritual experience can convert into one concerned with the affairs of this world because it is an incarnate. Place. That's right. And that's why I think if, you, um, if you're a Christian or if you're a Jew, if you're Orthodox of any religious tradition, one of the foremost public policy areas in which more conservative-minded people, traditional-minded and religiously devoted people should be occupied is thinking about ways to use the power of law, the shaping power of law, the influence of law, state, the state taxation, policies of taxation, incentives to encourage people to form families, to make it possible people to get married and to stay married and to have children, to, to, cease, to, uh, to cease that it be a penalty or more difficult to form a family in our civilization today uh, and to have children and bring children up in our civilization today. More and more of my students say, well, I can't get married. I have exorbitant levels of debt. I have to form this career. I can't afford, I can't afford to bog myself down. I can't afford to pin myself down. And yet, I know at a deep level, I teach at Notre Dame, they want to get married. They want to have a family. Well, what if we, rem we remove, what if as a public policy, we, re we removed as many obstacles as possible? Think of the, I don't know at this point, billions of dollars that we're spending on Ukraine. What if we spent some percentage of that to say, or even the same amount or more than that to say, the future of our civilization depends on us having people who are committed and able to have families. Ought that not to be a central core, a central plank of what we're doing as people who want to conserve something. And I'll bet you the following, the more people who are able to have children, the more people who are able to bring them up, well, guess what? Those people tend to go to church. Those people tend to go to synagogue. Why? Because they realize I can't do it on my own. I'm going to need help. I'm going to need help giving them the moral community because parents just can't do everything themselves. So a lot of people that I know, they begin going back to church, they begin going back to service, go back, go, go back to synagogue once they form families. So I think, again, we have to see the kind of, the way in which these, all the reality is bounded together. The order of things is bounded together. And stop thinking as if, well, do we have to focus on the political? Do we have to focus on the religious, on the theological? I think we really just need to see that if it's reflecting the true order of things, all will follow from that. 
You know, I think that we've done pretty good justice to your book so far. I, you know, there, there are some reviews that have come out where people, you know, are sort of like, where, where are the fireworks? You know, where's the, where are the explosions, the bomb bursting there at the end? You know, where, where do we get the picture of the regime crumbling into the sea and the people rising up? And uh, I, I think what you just said very ably indicates that what you're telling us is, yes, it's a crisis situation. Yes, we need to take dramatic action, radical action even. But once we do, that hairpin is going to be pronounced. And once we start pointing ourselves in a fruitful direction again, then stability and fruitfulness will come back pretty quickly to public life and to private life. And that will build a foundation that by the time we make it, you know, maybe 10 or 20 years into that process, we're not going to need to storm the castle. We're not going to need to string people up or behead the, you know, behead the bad guys. Um, we're going to have a, a flowering once again of, of the natural order of things. And going down that road is going to be one that's kind of self-reinforcing and self-rewarding. Not, not a lot generally good comes out of very violent political revolutions, maybe once in a while in human political history. Uh, but I think you just gave us a really fruitful image. If you turn the ship, you know, think America like the Titanic, <laughs> maybe, maybe a very uh, <laughs> a more appropriate <laughs> image than I might like. But if we think of the America like the Titanic, had the Titanic begun to turn earlier, it would have missed that iceberg by miles. If it was turning many, many hours before that, not that it could have seen the iceberg ahead of time then, it would have missed it by the length, uh, the width of a continent. Right? In other words, a small turn now down the line leads to massively different places than the trajectory that we're headed on right now. So I think we really need to see if, if what appear to be relatively modest proposals, and I actually think some are not entirely modest in, in the book. And, and it's also an effort to really invite people to think of, let's think of, our, let's think of a whole range of ways that we might reshape the elite in the end and pursuit of also helping to elevate and shape a new and better populace. Well, if that's the aim, I think we do have to be thinking about what do things look like ten, you know, five years, 10 years, 20 years from now? It's not just what's going to happen tomorrow, as, as much as we want to change tomorrow. But what, in politics, one really does have to have the kind of longer-term vision. And where are we going to be? If we even make a relatively slight turn right now, where will we be if we follow the trajectory of that turn in another 20 years? And here I think you know, there's some hope that relatively modest things now could lead in a very different direction. I like it. I think that's right. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna leave uh, our audience with a little kicker here um, <clears throat> because you do go after the nation's founding, and you do not shy away from saying, "Look, there are some things that were planted at the beginning here that have ended up really hurting us." Um, you know, definitely not full 1619 project, not even close. Uh, but you know whether it's it's sort of James Madison talking about acquisitiveness. I mean, the America is a large republic. And the founders, I think, were probably quite right that in order for a large republic to go on, it's going to be different from a small republic. And the thing that's going to kind of keep it going and keep the bodies moving around in the space in a fruitful way is commercial life. And unless society is fully committed to the open and compounding development of commercial life, it's going to be kind of difficult to keep a large republic up and running.
It turns out, though, that the commercial life also makes it hard to keep the republic. As right. We've, so, as we've so seen. you know, there, there, so there, were, there so, are those, yeah. and you and I know some of them personally, right. who say, like, yes, the U.S. is the Titanic. You can't turn it around. It is too late. It's been going in this direction for too long. It's going to have to be not just a different regime, but ultimately a different country or multiple countries. What do you say to that? Well, I, I would rather look at the strands of the American founding. And this is some, my critique of the founding has less to do with the founding itself than the ways that I think many of our friends in the conservative world have tended to read the founding in somewhat of a univocal way. That it was merely to be the commercial republic and the place where we would be rights-bearing individuals who would be self-making and self-shaping. Uh, I think, of course, you know, going back to those lines from John Adams or going back to lines by Thomas Jefferson about the importance of people owning some property or what's the modern, you know, virtual version of that, having some stake in their society. All of the warnings about a too acquisitive society, the need to form people in virtue, all of those voices are there at the American founding, right? Uh, Alexis de Tocqueville, when he comes 50 years after the founding, he's, he's stunned by the conservative nature of the lawyers, that the lawyers are the kind of embodiment of the old aristocracy. And he says, keep that. Keep the old aristocracy. And I think if he'd spent more time on universities, he would have said the same thing about the professoriate back then, who were emphasizing biblical Greek and Latin. That was the uh, biblical studies uh, and study of Greek and Latin texts. So we have a tradition in the United States that's traditional, that understands that there have to be limits and constraints on the acquisitiveness that a commercial society is going to cultivate, that it's going to engender, uh, that cultivates the kind of corresponding virtues of hum humility, of self-limitation, which included things like the Sabbath. I think that's part of the American tradition. So we need to read the fullness of the American tradition and in some ways to rebalance it back to an understanding that America was founded not just to be an experiment in liberty, but also an order, a political order that would create a, a, a republic that also offered stability to its citizens. Beautifully said. The book is Regime Change the Man is Patrick Deneen. That's literally all the time we've got, at least until next time around. If you found this conversation meaningful, and who wouldn't, please consider becoming a Blaze TV subscriber to help us create more content almost just like this. Go to blazetv.com and use the code 0hour20, that's Z-E-R-O-H-O-U-R-2-0 for $20 off your first year of Blaze TV. This is Zero Hour. I am James Polis, and may God have mercy on us all.